Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episode is an appreciation of the great sitcom Superstore and The Good Place, and there's more coming up. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky was last seen getting into a truck on Lower Wacker with a bunch of clowns, but we have confidence she'll be back for our next pairing. This week we're talking about two films set in the Batman mythos, so I thought it would be fun if whoever read the intro did it in a Batman voice. Scott, the honor falls to you. Sure thing, I'm great at this. I'm great at this. Ready? Starring Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck, an outcast who aspires to be a comedian, Todd Phillips' new movie Joker. I got I, I had to. I had to stop you. That is that is a terrible Batman impression. I'll read it myself. Okay. Starring Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck, an outcast who aspires to be a comedian, Todd Phillips' new movie Joker. Off. That's not good either. What do we do now? Just throw this bit out. Starring Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck, an outcast who aspires to be a comedian, Todd Phillips' new movie, Joker, offers... Wait, who is that? It is I, the Batman. Shall I continue? Todd Phillips' new movie, Joker, offers a new take on the origin story of Batman... uh, My, my most famous bad guy. Heavily inspired by Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy... Two movies about troubled loners, directed by Martin Scorsese. Joker follows Arthur as he descends into madness, in the middle of a hellish Gotham City, in which rats and a garbage strike are only the most visible signs of urban decay. Joker got us thinking about another movie featuring the Joker, Christopher Nolan's 2008 film The Dark Knight. A sequel to Batman Begins, which depicted how I became the Batman, The Dark Knight tells a complex tale of crime and madness in Gotham City. Now, if the two of you would just kindly look over there. Where'd he go? I I, I don't know. Hey, hey guys. Uh, Sorry, I had to step out for a second. What were you guys talking about? Mm, Not a lot. Just how this week we're talking about The Dark Knight and next week we'll talk about Joker. Did you see anyone on your way in? No. Should I have? I guess not. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Where do we begin? A year ago, these uh, cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. (laughs) Here's my card. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. You once told me that we'd be together. Did you mean it? Bruce, don't make me your only hope for a normal life. You're Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) We're tonight's entertainment. Well, hello, beautiful. You look nervous. I've seen now what I have to become to stop men like him. The night is darkest just before the dawn. I promise you, the dawn is coming. And here we go. Released in 2005, Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins felt like a different sort of Batman film, but not that different. Its guiding principle was to make sure every element it brought from Batman comics had a reason to exist in the film. 
even down to the scallops on his gloves. But it still took place in the Gotham City that owed a lot to the dark deco look of Tim Burton's two Batman films and Batman the Animated Series. Rather than building on those fanciful touches for The Dark Knight, Nolan chose to strip them away. The Gotham of this film looked less like a living comic book than a 21st century metropolis. In fact, it looked an awful lot like Chicago, where most of it was filmed. This approach extended to its plot as well, a labyrinthine crime story that spanned from the highest reaches of government to the city's back alleys, and literally extended from its highest points atop the city's skyscrapers to the subterranean depths of underground streets. It almost didn't even need Batman to work. Almost. But the presence of a superhero serves to heighten the stakes, giving the film a single-minded fighter for justice to contrast with the compromises and moral complexity of a city filled with crooked cops and mob-run banks, a place where honest operators like Lieutenant Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, Rachel Dawes, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and District Attorney Harvey Dent, played by Aaron Eckhart, find themselves constantly endangered and in situations where even Batman, played by Christian Bale, can't always help. Enter... The Joker, a new sort of criminal with a theatrical flair seemingly inspired by the appearance of a costume Avenger. But Joker positions himself as Batman's opposite, explicitly calling himself an agent of chaos, taunting Batman for his reliance on rules, and talking of himself as a creature of impulse, even while plotting elaborate, multi-layered crimes that involve schemes within schemes. But though he's a gifted thief, Joker's ultimate goal isn't money, but the desire to prove a point about the ugliness of humanity and the hypocrisy of those who claim to possess virtue. These aren't new themes to the Batman universe. They're variations on stories of Batman and the Joker inspired by such titles as The Killing Joke, but their roots go back to the earliest appearances of the Joker, in which he was a murderous mischief maker. And they're not new themes to crime films in general, which are filled with stories in which cops and criminals come to recognize how much they have in common. But Nolan's decision to combine them and to use familiar characters like Batman and the Joker in a gritty crime story gives it a unique charge and makes its outsized characters feel like players in an urban drama of corruption and hard-fought victories not far removed from our own world. Yet it's not our world, and these aren't quite characters who walk among us. Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker is both psychologically rich and makes the character feel like a flesh-and-blood possibility in the way previous interpretations had not. Yet who is this guy? He arrives seemingly out of nowhere. He tells different versions of his origin story and sounds sincere each time. He seems determined to prove the baseness of even the most virtuous Gothamite, yet appears undaunted when his plans fail. Even at the end, suspended upside down, he's confident, telling Batman, I think you and I are destined to do this forever. In one sense, he's sadly wrong. Ledger died before the film's release and before winning a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his work. If no one had any plans for the character in the sequel, they went unrealized. But in another sense, the Joker is right. The Dark Knight ends without a clear winner and with a decision to hide the truth of dense corruption in order to inspire better tomorrow. It's a draw for Batman and the forces of good, not a victory. And the last time we see the Joker, he's been captured but hardly defeated. If the traditional crime story ends with a lesson that crime doesn't pay, this one makes crime irrelevant, focusing instead on what it takes to save the soul of a city, the price this asks of those who attempt it, and the seductive appeal of giving up on ideas of good and evil and just letting chaos win the day. I just did what I do best. I took your little plan and I turned it on itself. Look what I did to this city with a few drums of gas and a couple of bullets. Hmm? You, you know what I noticed? Nobody panics when things go according to plan. Even if the plan is horrifying. If tomorrow I tell the press that like a gangbanger, will get shot, or a truckload of soldiers will be blown up. Nobody panics, because it's all part of the plan. But when I say that one little old mare will die, well, then everyone loses their minds. All right, everyone. So what's your history with The Dark Knight? I think we may all have seen it for the first time at the same time. And do you feel about it now the way you felt about it when you first saw it, Tasha? I mean, when I saw it in 2008, I think... The problems that I have with the plot, which are pretty significant and ride really heavily on the, I think, very problematic ending, kind of dominated the film for me. Mm. Maybe because walking out the door, just thinking that was the dumbest way to end a Batman film. Specifically the stuff with the fairies or the <laughs> Harvey Dent stuff? Or? I actually had the same problem when we were discussing. I was discussing the film with my husband. You you say fairies and I picture uh, <laughs> like little Tinkerbell types. Yeah. I, 
And I'm like, are, wait, are, is this a joke? That'd no, be, that'd be a cool story, though. Cool uh, Batman story. Batman versus the fairies. Mm-hmm. No, uh, the the fairy bit I think is the last brilliant part of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I love both how that's set up and what it comes to, and the specific way it comes to it. But we can get to that later. No, it's specifically Batman deciding that it somehow makes sense for him to take the blame for uh, the things that Harvey Dent did, as if there weren't a thousand other ways to deal with that that wouldn't torpedo Harvey Dent's, you know, efficacy as a white knight, as if it still mattered that he be a white knight in a a city where, you know, there are potentially other people who could step up. Again, we can argue that uh, in more detail later, but I thought that the ending of the film was just a maybe interesting idea, very badly handled. And I walked out of the film just with that as the dominant impression. Mm -hmm. Going back and watching it a decade later, knowing that that's coming, I was able to separate out all of the things about the film that are really strong. Um, And I was able to sort of like experience it less as a series of kind of like impatient all right, now we have another action set piece. Okay, now we're going to Hong Kong for money reasons that have nothing to do with the story of the film. I was able to sort of separate the parts of the film that I don't like from the parts of the film that are memorable. And having just seen Joker, I think makes the Heath Ledger version of the character even more interesting. So I actually had a better experience with this this time than I did in 2008. What about you, Scott? I've always been on board with it. I mean, uh, you know, as you all are are aware, my uh, connection to comics and and, that, and superheroes and that sort of thing is not as strong i guess as, as everyone else is here but i think it's the most substantive of the three nolan batman movies the most striking and uh, and i think that you know it's just a level the level of a- ambition in terms of both the staging of it and then and the themes of it are just so far beyond what we've seen before or since i mean it is a really significant achievement and what was interesting watch it to me watching it again today is is just being reminded of what people were feeling when that movie came out and what what nolan was thinking about because to me the entire trilogy is so much about terrorism about and about how we were feeling after 9-11 but i mean you know it's been a while since 9-11 and it had it reminded me like oh yeah this was the mood of the country then in 2008 it's not quite the same now I mean, we get to Joker later. Joker, for all, whatever faults that you might have, very much is a movie of the day in a way that The Dark Knight is not. The Dark Knight is so much about terrorism and the and, the, and how how unnerved people feel and how despairing they feel about where the world has is, is gone and, and the potential for evil and you know corruption. All these all these elements are so of their time, you know. So I kind of appreciated Dark Knight as kind of a cultural object this time. Yeah, I I, I can see that. For sure, as well, and also it's kind of worth remembering it is it is you know a few years after nine eleven, it's kind of about rebuilding, which is I think kind of also was the mood of the country as well. It kind of like competing with this sort of paranoia, which plays into the film very heavily as well. And and you know there's a whole section about the links. You know what rights is Batman willing to violate to in order to provide security for the city is, is a very <laughs> yeah. very timely theme. Yeah. Um, then uh, and not that it's not now, but it certainly was much talked about as well. As for me, I I, I think this film's terrific. I kind of know what you mean about the ending, Tasha. I think it is the place that film needs to end. I'm just not sure that final sequence is the most graceful way to get there, especially after, I mean, I feel like the parallel uh, fairy stuff and the fight in what <laughs> in the what it was is the under construction Trump Tower. I don't know if you knew that's where they filmed that. Um, <laughs> that cursed, was, cursed image, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, I think it's I think it's terrific. I think it's it's a. I really like Batman Begins. This felt Me like too. It, I, I, I and I like the third one as well. Although I need to revisit it, it's not quite to the level of, of this film. I know some people really don't like it at all. But, yeah, I never um, I mean, what's most striking about the movie? I tried to get this in, in the in the keynote address. The, the there is is it, how much of the comic bookness it just strips away. I mean, I think Michael Mann is a pretty obvious influence on this film. And, yeah, and I think, like I said, you can almost do this without Batman. But I think it makes it a little more operatic in in a way that I think it's makes it fascinating. I, I'm I'm yeah, I'm a fan. You do it without Batman. 
You could do the story as a crime story about corruption in, in some ways. Yeah, vigilantism. And... Yeah. I just don't know that you could. I think the Joker without Batman is maybe a less interesting thing. No, and I, one I mean... of the things that I like so much about this mm. movie is how well it recognizes the most interesting parts of that dynamic. How, how the Joker outright says, like, I have no interest in killing you. Mm-hmm. Like, playing with you is so much more interesting. Which I've always thought uh, was just, like, a good dynamic for the two of them in terms of trying to always find escalation that'll keep people interested, but still like knowing that you're always going to do this story because the dance between them is more interesting than one of them winning. I'll tell you, we talked about when we first encountered this movie, I do remember that very vividly because uh, it was screened. I don't know if maybe, I think we were all, maybe we were all there. I was definitely there. It was at the IMAX. IMAX. Uh There were sequences in the movie that were shot on that large format and so and so it would toggle back and forth between these sequences that were that were almost square in dimension but filling up the entire screen mm-hmm. and then and then back to sort of boxed anamorphic and uh and I just remember that you know you, you open with that unbelievably great <laughs> heist sequence right that was all IMAX and mm-hmm. there was such a thrill watching that but what was interesting to me about that scene is just how immediately it explodes a fundamental principle of a heist movie which is honor among thieves right I mean like, it, this is the opposite of that this is everybody being ordered to shoot everybody else and then at the end you know the Joker is the last one standing there's absolutely no he's he, Joker is true to his, whatever word he he's, he's not true to his word in any sense of the word he's just it's everyone out for themselves there's something so chilling about that of, of someone who who's who's so completely disregarding you know any morality or any is 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 not true to his word in any in any way i mean there's i don't know it, it just it kind of gets the movie off to such an interesting footing that pays off later when we kind of learn again learn more about the joker and get that confrontation going with batman and, and able to kind of contrast their virtues or lack thereof i mean it's it's really an incredible start to the movie it's a really strong heist sequence. It's a really strong action sequence. It's got a really strong William Fickner uh, yeah. just showing up in the middle Love of it, it to uh, remind us all that he's William Fickner. Yeah. But what's the point of it within the greater plot? Like, why does Joker need that money or need that chaos? Is he maybe he's just trying to make an impression on the mob bosses, but it just feels like it doesn't add to anything about his overall plan of showing up the world as a, like a shallow, cynical, selfish place. I think that's just it, though. I think it's step one, become, yeah. step one, become crime boss. Right. Step two, rub the hypocrisy of the world in everyone's yeah, face. Yeah, no, I think uh, that's step, true. Step three, profit. Uh, <laughs> profit. But, but there is that, I think that is exactly right of just having, because he, it's about having a seat at the table, mm-hmm. which, which he, Literally, ta- uh, he takes a advantage of mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a, another extremely memorable scene. Rated PG-13. He does. Was it really? Yeah, That's know. ridiculous. That, like, that, I the ratings board. Yeah. What a joke. This just, I, I mean, he, he does get himself a seat at the table, but there's so many things about that table that I don't understand, starting with the fact that... Uh, <laughs> That that meeting starts with an accountant saying, I have stolen all of your money. Yeah. Hello, all of the mob bosses in town. I've stolen all of your money. And then I've left the country. And nobody protests at all. Like, nobody's like... He explains himself. Hey, does he? Like, it's just... And and we later he's not find an out. Count though he's kind of he's a titan of industry or whatever he's, he's like. a titan of industry who's also like the the only explanation for him having access to all of their money is that he's like also sort of like their crooked accountant like he's their he's their fund manager. Oh sure, he's the money guy. Don't ask me why their fund manager has access to their vaults or why. He, any of them are okay with him putting all of their money in a giant heap in a warehouse, which did not seem particularly secure. There's a lot about this movie that's very imagistic. There's, and a lot, there's moments when the when comic book logic creeps in. To yeah. this, this fairly concrete setting. That is fair. And like here, and God, one of them is, uh, is Two Faces Face, which would look just fine in a comics panel and kind of looks ridiculous in CG. I think, I mean, I think it's scary. It's the eye. It's, the, it's that when you see the like one eye that looks normal, and then the big like big eyeball that gets me. It is. I mean, it's creepy in a telltale heart kind of way. I can't get over the the ragged scraps of flesh that are somehow like adhering uh, between mm-hmm. his like upper and lower jaw and don't break or fall off no matter how much he talks. I don't know. It looks goofy to me. 
there's a lot of comic book logic in this movie, and I don't think that it jibes well with the stuff that is authentic to the human experience. I think some of the most telling and interesting things in this movie are real concerns about uh, about the human experience, about vigilantism, about the price of freedom and the difficulties of balancing it with privacy, about the people who do just want to watch the world burn and how hard it is to counter somebody who doesn't follow an understandable form of, of greed logic, about whether you can trust other people in a mob when they're out to protect themselves. And then you turn around and add in like the cartoonier elements, and I, I feel like it undermines those things a bit. I guess that's fair but at the same time and this is i think a question that you might have had i have trouble following the plot of this movie mm. um, I, I, and, I, I, and, and, and in a way it's liberating because it's like okay i'm gonna disconnect myself enough to just get the you know focus on the big picture and not get hung up on the sorts of things that you that <laughs> tasha gets hung up like, on like logic and I, continuity I can't, I can't it's so hard I, I think it all tracks though okay. i think i think as a the way you enjoy the film is a perfectly legitimate way to enjoy the film it's probably the way i enjoyed it the first time i watched mm-hmm. it but i i've you know, it actually, there's. I'm not sure it's airtight, but it does all work. One of my favorite details is one that you could just cut very easily and not take, you know, not affect the overall plot at all. But I love the the Wayne Industries worker who tries to blackmail him. And then, <laughs> that like, is a great scene. That's a great scene, and the yeah. payoff when Bruce Wayne saves him and they exchange that look, like I know that you know, and you know that I know that you know, and we're not going to say anything about it. And it's like a half second, and it's perfect. Yeah, I, lo- that I love that. Great. You know. That I love that that's in there, and I think I think I trust the Nolans kind of have things thought through. That's mm-hmm. kind of the thing, but I've also I also recap the West Westworld <laughs> for the New York Times, and it's just I'm absolutely drowning every. Week. Well, I think it's two different oh, things though to plot out a self-contained movie, yeah, where everything makes sense. As confusing it might get in the moment, if you step back, you can see it all makes sense. I'm not sure Westworld has that. Um, I think it's, advantage I, it's too, no it is too it's it's basically that show is basically made to fool uh, uh people on reddit <laughs> i need to watch season two <laughs> right? it's, it's, not it. just to fool them but to invite them into elaborate puzzles that yeah, they seem ex- to have exactly. a lot of fun which is not not good for, not good for your humble reviewer but but back to uh <laughs> Back to the Dark Knight. Well, here's the thing, Scott. I think I think you know we've we have tracked so many differences between our our tastes mm-hmm. and our approaches over yes. the years. I would say that uh, you taking a glass half full optimism approach to plots that you don't feel hold together is maybe a very big difference between us. Because I I compare something like this, which feels like a patchwork of plot bits that don't entirely fit together, and in some cases patchwork scenes that don't entirely fit together like the the continuity in the uh the underground fight scene is pretty dreadful and there's a lot of stuff that just visually which, which one is it which the, the one on the one shot on lower wacker drive oh sure yeah. where the uh the cops are like oh we've got to go we've got to go down on lower third and the the other cops like lower third oh no we're gonna be people cannot resist shooting on lower wacker well it's very i when we were watching this film my husband was like hey look it's chicago before the transformers destroyed it yeah <laughs> which also has some uh, memorable scenes involving lower wacker do you think baby continuity is you're you're a little more sensitive to it because you know Lower Wacker though. Oh, I don't. I don't mean geographically. Like uh-huh. for whatever reason, uh, geographical continuity has always been one of those things that drives people nuts that I don't care about at all. Mm-hmm. So if I see a film shot in Chicago and like a car is driving down uh, Lakeshore Drive, like in the Irving Park area, and then the next shot it's driving like up from the south like that does not bother me at all it sometimes i'll be like oh i know where that is but i like i won't be like this movie sucks which some (laughs) people really do get Mm -hmm. angry about that kind of thing the big sick i I think i mentioned had a shot that was like at the very beginning that's like (laughs) really you're driving you know right next to navy pier going like the opposite direction it was like your morning commute involves driving from the lake into the into downtown <laughs> anyway go ahead the worst movie ever yes. no i mean things like uh there's there's a shot in the middle of that where it's clear that there's somebody sitting next to the joker in the truck and we don't see him before or after that shot mm. uh like just things like that that's like wait so what's actually going on here who's participating in it and where are they i just like that one truck driver looks like hunter s thompson <laughs> It just like your willingness to trust that they know what they're doing is not a quality I share. And when I compare this to Memento or The Prestige, yeah. which are just 
airtight movies. I mean, beautifully constructed and crafted uh, in ways where the the slotting of each piece into the next piece is like part of the joy of watching the films. Yeah. I just don't think that this. But, there, but I think I think they're I think they're different though in that respect. I think Memento is utterly reliant on that effect in a way that Dark Knight isn't. Dark Knight is trying to trying to paint a larger thematic picture, and and not to say that Memento doesn't have themes. It absolutely does, but. It's a different thing in terms of the importance of everything working out. But I will say there was something I always remember about that Quentin Tarantino said about movies, which is that he says that movies, there's like an umbilical cord that's from the screen to the viewer that connects them. And when and when something gets, you know, when there's confusion, there's a point where that, that it gets cut and, the, and that connection is lost. And I think maybe that's the dynamic here of just like that nourishing tube <laughs> has been has been severed um and so the movie all, all the movie becomes more difficult to accept i guess sure so, so we talked about you know the nolans jonathan and christopher uh who co-wrote the script from a story by by nolan and david square if i, if I remember correctly you know nolan if you look at his earlier films you don't necessarily think give this guy a superhero movie does his style lend itself to superhero movies and what does he bring to it that makes that makes this an interesting film I mean, I think his style has changed. Uh, I yeah. mean, it's it's evolved since the beginning. I mean, he's he's been able to scale up in terms of his ability to make, you know, nine figure blockbusters. That wasn't something that that's something he had to learn to do, and he learned over time f- from going from following, which is quite rudimentary, to Memento, which is which is pretty simple in terms of the filmmaking and then he would graduated to films like insomnia right and Batman begins which is also very tight right and prestige like he was like you know he was working his way up and so i think there's a, a level of mastery in a film like dunkirk for example that that he wasn't necessarily capable of back when he made the dark knight i think he's gotten more and more assured directing films on the scale but I mean, I think this film has got some really, does have some really wonderful sequences. Maybe not the lower racker one, but there's. I, I the, love that sequence. Uh, I, 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 a, I know, I know, you know, Tasha will nitpick it, but I, I, I think that's. But there's some beautiful. I don't, don't accuse me of nitpicking because I'm like noticing bad continuity. <laughs> I mean, if I was, uh, I would, I would cop to nitpicking if I was complaining about the direction they're going or whatever. But, I mean, I, I think going back and looking at it, if you're not. If you're not just watching it for excitement, like if you're actually watching the filmmaking, it's a kind of incoherent sequence. And mm. it, it surprised me on that level, to mm. be honest. You know what I like about that sequence, though? That sequence and the sequence that follows are just briefly interrupted. They bring the score, the score, which has been like a major component of the film, just drops out during that. And then you get a little bit of it again. And then, the, then they had the street confrontation uh, with the, the bat cycle or whatever. Uh, and there's no score to that either, too. It's really interesting what he does there. That sequence has the thing with the truck. Right. Yeah. That, like, uh, that part I like. Yeah. There's a lot of things in like this movie thing, with like a lot of trucks. trucks. <laughs> no, the thing Which with the, thing? the thing with the cycle and the truck and yeah, the truck yeah. goes over. That's great. Yeah, it's good stuff. Good, <laughs> good stuff. job, Christopher. And of course, the high, the high sequence at the beginning is Crackerjack. Totally Crackerjack. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's capable. He's you know, and, I mean, and there are just standalone scenes in the movie that are really good. And, I, and the other thing I really like about the movie is uh, how visceral it is. Um, you know, and I think we haven't talked about Heath Ledger's performance as a Joker, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to. But what I liked about it was um how in the mix the guy is you know he's not somebody who's a lot of super villains are are in the background ordering their henchmen to do stuff but mm-hmm. he kind of he gets in some fights you know in in the in the film is the film really has a a a powerful punchy visceral quality to it um that that's surprising especially in contrast to the more plasticky fight sequences that we've come to ex- come to accept in Marvel films and even other DC films. I saw like CGI is not a part of this film, but it's it's sort of an invisible art in this. Mm-hmm. It does not call attention to itself at all. And like you said, the fight scenes are really like starting with that parking garage fight at the beginning. It's it is very um, you know very bru- there's a lot of bruising, you know, a lot of punching and bruising in this film. I'm still trying to think about things that are Chris Nolan specific 
that make this film work. And I, I, the one that honestly most comes to mind is his willingness to trust the viewer to keep up. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very heady, idea-filled, philosophical uh, superhero movie. And he throws out a lot of different ideas and he he wants the viewer to engage with them. Like they're not, we, we do see a lot of superhero films that have a line or two that are meant to serve as the <laughs> the entire film's philosophy yeah. and be sort of proof that like, look, we, we totally thought about uh, privacy and spying. We totally thought about, yeah. uh, you know, who can be trusted with uh, complete power. We uh, totally thought about governments, but they're mostly about the action and the humor. And like here, he really is trying to do a lot. And, on like an as, as Scott said at the beginning, kind of an, on a, an ambition level that's unusual for a superhero movie, but definitely not unusual for a Chris Nolan movie. Like he's actively trying to do something different with elements that a lot of people have addressed before. Uh, he's trying to, to push the medium further and he's trying to push the characters further. And I mean, that in and of itself, I think, is one of the things that defines a Chris Nolan movie. Yeah, that means, that's a really good point, Tasha, because what you're saying reminded me so much of something like Captain Marvel, right? We talk about it being directed by Bowden and Fleck, you know, Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, who, who had this history as pretty, you know, independent filmmakers of a John Sayles school. And it's like, there's a part of that film that is kind of about refugees, right? And it's like, okay, well, maybe that's their presence is there in that way, but it's so small. It's so, it's not like this prevailing idea that they're trying to express through the medium of the superhero movie, which is, which is what Nolan's trying to do. Nolan has found this popular thing the most po- you know the, the and, and he's going to pump as many ideas as he can into it and uh, and he means it you know and it makes a difference i think an even better point of comparison is is uh, captain america winter soldier ah yeah, uh, yeah which yeah. is a movie i like i like a lot i think it's one of my favorite marvel movies but i think it kind of tries to do some of this take on some of the same themes as the dark knight or three you know, days of the condor right or th- yeah sure but you never get the feeling those that's the reason these that movie exists whereas this feels like it exists to explore those those themes but, you know it's its reason for being uh, that actually brings me to the next point i wanted to talk about is this movie came out in the summer of 2008 as did iron man and they presented two different paths forward for the superhero movie and one has clearly become the dominant form, but we didn't see it coming then. Although I feel like perhaps the other kind of form is kind of exerting itself as well. Uh, I mean, like it or not, Joker perhaps is this week. Yeah, Joker, <laughs> Joker is not is not a cookie cutter shared universe. Um, let's set this, you know, make this movie to something set the five movies that follow kind of kind of thing, which DC has had much less luck with than Marvel. So let's take us back to the summer of two thousand eight. You know, how how did you think about those films in comparison to each other, and and did you see one at that point more likely to be successful than the other? Boy, that's a really interesting question. I mean, in terms of like in terms of Iron Man and where Iron Man was going, I remember really enjoying that film without certainly without thinking that it was laying down a house style mm-hmm. um, that would extend to more than 20 films. I mean, I, nobody maybe saw that coming except uh, Kevin Feig and a few uh, eggheads at Marvel. So I definitely didn't see it as like a kind of conceptual or executional war uh, between the two movies. I do think with even like a little retrospect, like even a a year or two worth of retrospect, you you could sort of see the difference between like a big, ambitious, sprawling, signature, directorial specific idea uh, versus something that was very much like a piece of slick entertainment kind of meant to to launch an idea and launch a, a franchise but uh certainly not at the time i don't think i really thought of it that way either just uh, uh, because i you could i couldn't see the future i wasn't aware that there was this grand plan that was just getting going it was just iron man was a pretty entertaining movie that i enjoyed you know but then when you compare it to something like the dark knight it, it really shrinks it's just not as significant in terms of uh its ambition uh, as as the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight was the, is the middle and and probably the strongest of a, of a trilogy that's really trying to give you a 
portrait of the country and how the country's feeling post 9-11 and i mean that's a, that's it just doesn't get any more ambitious ambitious than that there's no i mean iron man is gonna is bound to look puny by comparison oh i think puny is a, you know, a tough tough order they don't know i mean they don't have to by comparison i said puny uh, god I don't, I don't think they, all, they don't have to be four course meals you know sometimes you know a lighter a lighter snack will do you know and, and, and in this case an amuse bouche for a much much bigger meal that was on the way yeah uh, yeah. yeah indeed I feel like the DC extended universe, extended, expanded. It's ex- I think the official thing is extended, although I think that was sort of unofficially brought in when someone else made it up. But anyway, well, for fair. our purposes, let's use that. I think the DC extended universe was probably less influenced by Nolan than it was by Zack Snyder. And Zack Snyder, I don't know to what degree he cites Nolan as uh, an influence on his version of... Well, Nolan was producer on Man of Steel, so there was sure. some involvement there. Sure, but it's still, it's such a Zack Snyder film. I mean, not to, maybe not to the degree that 300 or Watchmen or God Help Us All, Batman v Superman is a <laughs> Zack Snyder what is it that you like to say? No good. Unfilmed is Zack Snyder, like something along that line. He's <laughs> not too worried. You have to say unfilmed. Uh, but yeah, all of these things that that Zack Snyder brought in that are like like his idea of cool. I feel like Christopher Nolan, his, like his idea of cool is something that challenges the viewer to keep up and makes them think about something. And Zack Snyder's idea of cool is... Uh, they've got really oiled up abs and they're super badass and then they kick somebody's face off. Like he's just, Zack Snyder's always had much more of an adolescent boy kind of idea of what's badass. And Christopher Nolan seems like he's going for a much more like heady adult intellectual experience, even when they're both addressing the same character, even when they're both doing fight scenes. And I think the DC universe like where it where it kind of floundered was in Snyder's feeling that any form of humor was poisonous to a, like a serious movie, and I you do get some of that here, I suppose. I mean that that could be an influence. I'm trying to think There's of like warmth though here. Right in a way that there isn't. With- there's there's human warmth. I mean, this is the maybe the only Batman live action movie that has ever convinced me that Bruce Wayne could love somebody and have a romantic relationship with mm-hmm. them. Yeah, you know, we've seen a lot of efforts in that regard, but we've also just seen a lot of uh, either very cold, inhuman versions of the Batman, or just like very strange, not very real, not very breathing, believable versions of the Batman. I'm thinking of Michael Keaton there. Like he just never struck me as a romantic human kind of person, even if he is a better Bruce Wayne than a Batman I, I think as an he, actor. His interpretation of it is just uh, Bruce Wayne is a big weirdo who can't relate to people at all yeah, exactly. <laughs> on any level, you know? Um, I mean, I think it helps that, that, um, that uh, Christian Bale and Maggie Gyllenhaal have real chemistry as, yeah. as those characters uh, as well. It's hard to find someone on Bat Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the fact that he put like a billion dollars into developing it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yet no, no, yet no perfect match. No, I think He's you're the only right. Superhero. I think there's, I think there's a warmth and a humanism here. But is there? Can you think of a single joke in the film that lands? Like a single joke that isn't like a bitter. Uh, Joker related cackle kind of joke. Bruce yeah. Bruce and Alfred banter. They have some good banter. Yeah, we we laughed we laughed like crazy. That's we were just talking about the scene of the guy the guy who tries to blackmail Bruce Wayne. I mean, that's a really funny scene. That is and the way funny. Morgan Freeman plays that is just uh, chef's kiss, as mm-hmm. they say. Mm-hmm. So maybe, but I mean, none of this really compares to the the level of of jokery that happens in the MCU films. So I I feel like where the two parted ways wasn't necessarily in two thousand and eight. I think it was I think it was a little further down the line. Well, the next big DC film was Watchmen, and followed oh, really? by yeah, followed by Jonah Hex. Followed by, oh, followed by followed by Green Lantern, uh, followed by Dark Knight Rises, and then Man of Steel kind of kicks off the DCEU as it's come to be known and loved. You know, loved looking back son. at Green Lantern and everything wrong with Green Lantern, like Jonah Hex is just a, an abomination of a film. But I mean, it had so many problems going on during production, and it's it's just a botched edit. It's just a terrible film. But uh, like looking at Watchmen's self-importance and looking at Green Lantern, <laughs> that that also does feel like like it obviously couldn't have been inspired by uh, by Man of Steel. Maybe it is taking its 
attempts at seriousness and gravity and and scope and scale from Nolan, and that's what went wrong with it. Green Lantern. Yeah. I think Green Lantern is kind of a failed Marvel film, though. I think yeah. he's trying to go for a lighter touch, and doesn't it just kind no, of doesn't it, work it at all? It really doesn't. You know what I was thinking though? Because <laughs> like, I mean, we were talking about some of the failures of DC. I mean. I can already see people attacking us on Twitter for that because the people who are in DC are, you know, unkind sometimes. But I was thinking, like, I should start a burner account where anytime someone says something bad about Jonah Hex, I just like I just say the most <laughs> savage stuff I can think of. Do well, you people... you just you start with accusing them of taking Marvel money. Like yeah. that's that's where it always goes. You have to find some someone reason. talking about Jonah Hex. That's what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm just going to keep that search going, and uh, and just anybody who says something about Jonah Hex is going to get it from me. You could probably just set up a bot to do that. Like the the one time every six months somebody remembers that Jonah Hex the movie exists. <laughs> The bot just uh, either pokes you, like alerts you. I can, I can just see the bat signal going up to like let Scott know somebody's mentioned Jonah Hex. Be the Hex signal. So let's talk about why we chose this to begin with, which is Heath Ledger's performance as as Joker, which I think is fascinating. You can kind of see the you know the, the wheels within wheels, but some of them don't seem to be connecting. His ability to execute plans works but whatever whatever makes him makes most people human is absent although i you know the one way to read this is just him being in his own way sane just just evil i don't know there's just it, it lends itself to so many different interpretations I, I and i really as many times as i've seen this film i i find it strangely unpredictable <laughs> like i don't know what's going to happen next even though i know what's going to happen next what, what about what about you it's got to be deliberate and so is uh having multiple interpretations for the character i mean the, the whole idea of the character himself throwing out multiple origin stories for himself i find both psychologically interesting and maybe less satisfying than if we did actually have any idea like where the scars came from or why he is who he is. Having him be uh, such a cipher is in a way a little frustrating for me. And it's it maybe one reason that uh, I found Joker an interesting movie, but we can talk about that in the second half of this uh, <laughs> yes, podcast. Uh, I think uh, Scott and I may have slightly different views on no, Joker. Impossible. So uh, like, as far as the performance goes, it's very showy. It It is sort of yet another proof that, uh, you know, acting Oscars tend to go to the most actor rather than necessarily the most nuanced actor or the most talented actor. The thing that he does with his tongue, like, mm-hmm. well, I, I'm sure it's just meant to be off-putting, but I find it kind of off-putting. Sorry. Well, if you if your face is slashed up like that, maybe maybe there's maybe some of that lubrication or something is necessary. Maybe. Yeah. You know, I it bothers me vaguely that we never really I never get a sense for the scars. Like he makes such a big deal of the scars, but they're so heavily covered over with makeup. There's like the one scene where he's on the street in uh, like normal person makeup where you could in theory get like a sense of what his face looks like in terms of the scarring and Nolan deliberately has him turn away and cuts away from it so quickly it's like that's meant Was to the be assassination left tr- yes. attempt? Yeah. it's like it's all meant to be left to your imagination but again you know I, I go to a kind of man who laughs place with this like like seeing it full on seems like it'd be so much spookier and so much clearer given how much people make of the scars like it's like nobody notices the makeup right down to the point i just i find this hilarious every time where harvey dent's in the hospital and the joker's standing there with a a surgical mask over his mouth and harvey dent doesn't know that notice that there's anything wrong even though the person standing in front of him uh is smeared with like chalk white makeup and then has like explosions of black makeup like coming out of his eyes but until he pulls a little surgical max down it's like oh no that's normal people go around like that all the time it is a pretty big change to have it be makeup too which is in the comics it's not it's the color of his skin and in and, sure. and, and the bat in the in the uh, uh tim burton batman that's the case as well and um, it's also pretty perfect in those movies like it's just that his lips are very bright red it's just that his hair is green it's not melting all the time the mm-hmm. way it is here I mean, I like the the chaotic look of it, and I think the performance is meant to be 
inconsistent and all over the place in the same sort of way. Like he's meant to be a messy individual who's sometimes very calm and, and together and can deliver these just like like whip sharp focused monologues. And at other times he's like a giggling lunatic. Uh, I, I think that he's, he's meant to be a mess of a human being and that's meant to give you that unpredictability and that's probably both why it was a a big juicy meal of a role for ledger uh and why we respond to it the way we do yeah i mean i love the performance i never really think about the psychology though i i think about the joker as a manifestation of the times of somebody uh, of this thing that has been created by circumstance and that is reflective of of um Again, a feeling. I mean, this movie is so much about how we're feeling as a country. I think uh, and that's what the whole trilogy is about. And and uh, and he is he is somebody who is bringing you the sense of a threat that uh, d- that can't be bargained with. That that is uh, um, terrifying. That is nihilistic. That that will, that doesn't care about money. That can't be. That is just there to terrorize people you know it's, it's almost like it's almost what the type of person that we say the bush administration might have had us believed you know um osama bin laden was the, the terrorist who did 9-11 i mean nobody was ever th- they weren't trying to assign motives other than this is an evil these are evil people these are evil doers they, and, hate, and, our free- and, and, and they hate our freedom they hate our freedom and that's 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 kind of the joker the joker is, is that kind of guy is somebody who's who's doing something that is inexplicable and, and horrible and we're not going to be able to solve it and we're not going to be able to bargain with it and um Except it's going to be exceedingly difficult to confront it he doesn't hate our freedom he hates our trust in each other he hates civilization and society and people believing that other people are capable of good, which is, you know, just as irrational and and unlikely in a way. But how useful is it to explore terrorist activity as being this completely inexplicable thing that has no sensible function in actual human motivations whatsoever? You know, the the roots of terrorism are are pretty clear and obvious for the most part. And presenting it as this kind of like, oh, he's just crazy. Who knows what he might do? Like, he just hates love. Like how useful is that? And what's I mean? What do you, I, I guess I'm, that's not a rhetorical question. I, I would I, I'll answer. I'll answer for Scott here. I, I think <laughs> I, I think he's useful as as an embodiment. As, as I think Scott even said of, of a feeling uh, rather than a, as a, as a stand-in and some kind of a kind of a you know allegory for this. I think it's more of a a mood of the times kind of thing, more of a embodiment of our worst sense of what could happen to us. And I think it'd be really terrible. If there was some kind of figure who crept into public life, who was divisive in that way and appealed, you know, thought of humans as, as nothing but base and uh, wanted to sow discord among among Americans, that would be terrible. And I, I would I hate to see it actually happen in real life. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I that's that's a really good defense of it, Keith. And I guess I could add that the part of the film that I like most, the fairy part, is a direct repudiation to that figure, is a direct repudiation to that idea that people are easily terrified and there's no countering chaos. I mean, the the fairy sequence is the film expressing its faith in humanity in a very direct way. And yeah, that's probably why I find it such a powerful uh, a powerful sequence. It's also just really well assembled. But, well, plus, it's also, this film just loaded, like you mentioned Fick number four, but like, like familiar faces and smaller roles. Like that's Black Dynamite star uh, Michael J. White is the one who tosses the uh, the, the ignition thing overboard. And, and uh, I think about Anthony Michael Hall's in this film. He is, and, briefly, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all, kinds of, all kinds of people we know. I mean, this is a film with not one villain but two sort of uh, I mean another huge Batman villain is, is Two-Face who's Harvey Dent um, who as in the comics is, is a, well in the comics is a, is a DA whose face is scarred and they've told the variations in that story or different variations of that story over the years but in this one he's a good guy he's a really good guy the best guy even uh, you know bruce wayne uh, can overcome his his feelings his mixed feelings about uh, him dating his, ex- his ex-girlfriend and throw his support behind uh, harvey dent for mayor and then things go wrong and i do you know tasha already kind of touched on i do think the whole story of of harvey's corruption and misdeeds and the cover-up at the end especially i feel like his fall from grace and into evil is 
very swiftly handled and very compact in a way that doesn't necessarily, I'm not sure the character is, is as handled as well in, the, in, in its final stretches as he is in leading up to it. But how, how, do you, how do you all feel about Harvey? I think you're being very, very kind to some stuff that's very, very dumb. <laughs> I, I really like the buildup that Harvey gets. Like I, I love the idea of Batman kind of watching him from the shadows and thinking if we can just get this guy to like run the city the way it should be run, I wouldn't be necessary because so few Batman stories can contend at all with the idea of Batman eventually having to, to get old and go away or having to eventually get tired of avenging his parents every night forever. The ones that do contend with it are either entirely new stories like Batman Beyond or stories that end up just kind of having to address the fact that he's psychotic. So the idea of a Batman that is actually thinking about Endgame and thinking about a, a version of the world that doesn't need a vigilante beating people up, like I love the ambition of that idea. And I love the idea that he's in his own way seized on the idea of like a, a human person out in the light doing what he does, but legitimately as like an important idea. I love all of that buildup. The idea that 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 dude can then like turn around and shoot children, which is the cinematic equivalent of kicking puppies to show that you're evil. It's just a little too much for me. It's falling a little too much into Alan Moore's idea and killing joke embraced by the Joker that like all it really takes is one bad day mm -hmm. to ruin a man and turn him evil, which the killing joke, again, repudiates that idea pretty firmly. But Dark Knight kind of kind of buys it like D Dark Knight kind of buys the idea that all it takes is like one big loss. Well, in his case, one and a half big losses, uh, his love and half of his face. Um, and suddenly he's willing to murder, murder children, like enthused about the idea of murdering children. Well, like I said, it's very compact, <laughs> this transformation. Exactly. So as I say, I think you're being I think you're being kind to it. I think if the film maybe excised some of the more unnecessary set pieces, like the whole side trip to Hong Kong, like which was that. put yeah. in for the for the Chinese, like to appeal to the Chinese audiences. Mm, I know we get that IMAX. Those IMAX shot of shots of Hong Kong. It's uh, why why? Why? Why is it necessary to like the story or the themes in the way that like taking time you know, with you the Harvey Dent story? Stay in Gotham City. No, I like seeing Batman travel. Out of, you, ne you never, you never see Gotham. You never see it's like Batman. It's like Spider Man. Gotham. Why do you want him at home? You want him far from home. <laughs> you guys are the worst fanboys. My God. Okay, so we need him going to Hong Kong and and punching holes in Hong Kong buildings, but we don't need to take the time to make the Harvey Dent plotline make any damn sense. Yeah, it's maybe a little. The uh, uh, I also abruptness of that change is is maybe disappointing but it's a really good character and it's really dynamic mm -hmm. and Eckhart's you're right really good too Eckhart's really perfect good. perfectly cast and i do like that i mean that's a true theoretical narrative arc that he's taking in a way that nobody else is and that he's and that he does start at this place where he's you know a genuine hope for the city and you know he turns out to be quite corruptible i mean that's the journey you know and, and i you know i do wish that we didn't have to leap to it quite so quickly um and, and implausibly as you as you say but um i like the character <laughs> uh, you know it's flawed you know the, the treatment of it is flawed but it's uh, the idea was good yeah it's for it's, me it's, it's critical just, to the movie it's critical to joker's whole philosophy it is critical to joker's philosophy i just think it's really badly handled you know the 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 man that killed the woman that he loves is right in front of him and he decides to do the coin flip thing on whether to kill the Joker or not. Like that is the first really implausible thing to me. Like I'm glad that the movie take, took the time to set it up. And I think there's a neat irony in the fact that it's a double face coin and that whenever he pretends to make a choice via uh, flipping the coin, it's a deliberate irony. Like he's, he's making his own luck slash mm. showing what a golden boy that he is by by sort of enacting this joke for other people when he already knows exactly what he's going to do. He's confident about it. Yeah. So then turning that into actually making the decision whether like the love of his life needs to be avenged or he should go shoot a kid, like turning that on a coin flip. I just, there's no way you're going to make me buy that. It's true. The comic book character, as you, as you know, well, of course, but I, I don't feel like it, but yeah, I'm not sure that psychology has been established quite, quite as, as well as it should have been in this film. And I just think, 
like putting it in other places. Like, I, I mean, I like the sequence in the car where he just he decides not to kill Maroney because the, the coin flip comes up wrong, but does kill his driver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how he uh, survives that exactly. It's it's one of those like kind of like niggling little, all right, this is a comic book uh, moment question. But, you know, I like the sort of wickedness, the emotional wickedness of that moment in a way that... I'm just, I'm not going to avenge myself on the person that actually killed her. I'm going to avenge myself on a kid, like just doesn't. So I don't know. And then I've already held forth on how I feel about the ending. Why can't they blame all of those murders on the Joker who actually caused them as opposed to blaming them all on the Batman in a way that's just going to make the city harder to keep from falling apart? Roger Ebert had a good phrase for plots where it has to happen this way because we have to have it happen this way for the plot to continue. And that is the idiot plot. Mm -hmm. And that is how I feel about this. But doesn't it kind of go back to an earlier moment of the film though, when Dent decides to declare himself the the Batman, isn't that kind of like, doesn't it sort of close that circle a bit? Yeah, it's good, Tasha. It's all, I mean, convince me when you're, when you're saying, all right, it's necessary. The the public is dumb and we need to lie to them because they're going to have the wrong emotional reaction to the truth. Like I'm not much of a journalist. I'm an entertainment journalist, but like that hits me in some bad places. <laughs> and if you can convince me that sometimes the public needs to not know the truth, you have to come up with a better truth. And the Batman did it. The Batman murdered a bunch of people is not a better truth. It's not a better truth in terms of making the people feel confident and like making them believe in things. It's not a better truth in terms of where the movie goes. And it's not a better why truth in not, terms of plausibility. Why is it not better for the people in making them believe in things that for them to believe that, that Dent, Dent was a heroic dude? They, they believe in uh, the Batman just as much. Like we see it in no, like, but, but it's a different kind of justice though. It's a more legitimate form is it the of dawn justice. of justice. Oh goodness gracious. But you know what I'm saying? Like, 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 like Dent represents actual like civil, human you know non-super heroic justice that's a much more stable civilized thing to hold hold on to than than what batman is doing right and you know and this is extra textual in its way but but um you know in the sequel it's more or less worked i mean he's been able to retire as batman for a while as as dark knight returns uh, dark knight rises opens well i mean that just gets us back to it it doesn't make any sense but we have to do it to get to where we want to be i don't buy it i just don't buy that it makes sense to blame the deaths on the innocent rather than the guilty, that it makes sense to blame the deaths on the innocent rather than the person who really is the architect of like so many of these deaths. I just don't understand why they want to go that way with it. Destroying the bat signal though. That's cool, right? That's kind of a cool moment. I think no one just turned it off. You know, if we ended here, no one would admire the symmetry at least of, of beginning and ending the discussion (laughs) with, uh, with your problems with the ending of the film. But on a more positive note, I don't know. I think we all, we're all, we all like the song a lot though. Right. I mean, you know, it's kind of like it a lot. You like it enough. I like it enough. I think it's flawed in a bunch of ways that make it really, really interesting to discuss. Uh, I think it's a better movie than Joker, which is also a movie that's flawed in ways that make it really, really interesting to discuss. Which we will next week. In the meantime, we'll wind down this discussion and we'll be back after a short break to talk about feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We got several letters about our hustlers and casino pairing. Scott, want to start us off? Uh, Sure. Uh, Edwin writes, after weeks of feeling like I was taking crazy pills by being one of the few critics who thinks hustlers is mediocre at best, I was delighted to hear Tasha and Genevieve echo my issues with the film. Starting with the explosion of praise out of TIFF, the film seems to have received extravagant hype from critics who are excited to see a woman writer-director and a predominantly female cast take on what's typically been a male-dominated genre. While those are indeed exciting prospects, the so-so execution by a filmmaker with a middling track record, you saw The Meddler, right? And actors that are wildly miscast, Constance Wu, who's basically reprising her crazy rich Asians role, and inherently limited Jennifer Lopez, who, let's be honest, has really only been good and out of sight, does that potential a disservice. 
Another issue I have is that proponents of the film point to the characters targeting or seeking revenge on greedy Wall Street figures as a form of intentional revenge. Had that detail actually been stated or even conveyed in the film, I think Hustlers might actually have some interesting cultural commentary. But as is, women seem to be taking advantage of rich men from an array of professions simply because they're rich and gullible, not because the women were previously wronged by their selfish actions. I mean, the movie does sort of vaguely mention these things. I think it maybe just doesn't do enough to underline them in a meaningful way. I, I don't. I think there's some justification here that that is that is made explicit that that you know the how do these guys who have tanked the economy get to make get get to rip people off and we can't why can't we do that you know yeah, I mean, and also and also they're in a situation where they're literally effect, they are affected by the fact that it's 2008 and the economy's crashed and there are fewer fewer people in the, in, the, in, the, in the club and... iron man and dark knight have come out and they don't know which one's better and what the future <laughs> of comics is um so so i mean there is a sense though that there's someone to blame for this and that's their clients who are not showing up as in the numbers that they used to and so i, I can see it that makes sense it, it makes sense as a motive to me I mean, it makes sense as a motive. It's just, it, it's very glossed over. Uh, and I, I guess I, I'm not entirely sure what to say here that isn't recapitulating what we already said. But the, like, there's the little montage of like, look, look how bad, badly behaved these people are in the club. Therefore, they're obnoxious. Therefore, they deserve to get ripped off. And then like, there's uh, like a sentence or two about like, oh, these guys are immoral. So they deserve to get ripped off. To me, it just, all of that clashes clumsily with what we actually see of these schmoes which is some like very like seemingly easily overwhelmed kind of weak-willed people who don't really evince that kind of indifference to like other people's suffering or other people's finance like it, it we we sort of set up this bugaboo of like the wealthy Wall Street man who's a jerk to strippers in the club um, and is a jerk to the rest of the world. And then we end up ripping off a bunch of people who seem kind of like soft and sad and, and easily overwhelmed by attractive women. And I, I like it just doesn't make the connection for me. And one more note about this letter is that I can't allow the Jennifer Lopez slight to, <laughs> to stand. I, I mean, that is one element of the film that is that for me is unimpeachable. She's great. I, she, I, I have an element I can't let stand either, which I have not seen Hustlers yet. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, uh, but but uh, The Meddler's great. Great movie. <laughs> on. What's going on? It's, that's that's oh, I mean, yeah, it, yeah, the, ways in. Yeah, the, the premise. I know, yeah, look, the, the title and the premise, uh, you know, in which, which a, about a, you know, a meddling mother who can't save off her daughter's life sounds uh, a little intolerable, but it's so well acted. I really, and it's a good film about grief and loss and, uh, and funny too. I like it. So I'm saying. But they're good. I haven't seen it. Have you got? Have you, nope. Scott? Nope. But uh, so Keith's got to be our meddler representative here. He I does. Think. Martin Scorsese didn't go unmentioned either. Tasha, can you share another letter? Sure. Uh, describing himself as an aspiring friend of the show, Michael writes. <laughs> Best of luck. <laughs> Michael gave a long defense of Goodfellas over Casino. This is an edited version of the letter, which we'll post the rest of on Facebook. While I think I agree with you that all of Scorsese's movies are about America, at least to one extent or another, Goodfellas is a greater film than Casino because Goodfellas is about all of America, so it covers so much territory that it holds up as a great story without the viewer ever having to dive into the metaphor. Casino, on the other hand, is about a much smaller and meaner part of America, and so it leans much more heavily on the subtext to give the movie meaning. I would say the unlikable nature of the three main characters in Casino is by design. Ace is capitalism slash big business, looking to robotically, unemotionally do whatever it takes to separate people from their money, and always thinking six steps ahead. Nikki is crime slash the mob, looking to satisfy base desires in the simplest, quickest, most emotionally driven way possible, never looking beyond the next score. Ginger is the public, seeing only the possibility of money without ever considering how unlikely that possibility is, nor the consequences that are sure to come from a single-minded pursuit of it. I don't think Scorsese wants us to feel sympathy for any of them, because I think together they represent three shallow, single-minded things that work together in the desert to create a monument to all that is seedy and base about America. So while this may be a bit glib, Goodfellas represents the best things about America, family, loyalty, sacrifice for community, that we often fail to live up to, while Casino represents the worst things about America, greed, relentless individualism, ruthless pragmatism, which we almost never fail to live down to. And that's why Ace lives a long and hollow life in the end while Ginger and Nikki die. Because when it comes to Vegas, capitalism defeated both crime and humanity to live a long and hollow life. I'm going to disagree with the, the, the Goodfellas take <laughs> um, a, a little bit here, respectfully. 
that I don't think Goodfellas represents the best things about uh, about America. I mean, obviously, there are a professed uh, notions of family and of loyalty and, and community within that realm, but uh, those things go unhonored, right? <laughs> and there's there's all sorts of betrayal and all these things that are in casino greed. Relentless individual. I mean, the whole the whole Lufthansa scheme gets unravels because these guys can't stop spending money on themselves, buying their pink Cadillacs and their mink coats and all these other ostentatious things. And so, I think the flaws of humanity are quite evident in both films. And I also think, and I really do think. I mean, I, I think Goodfellas is a, is a superior film too, but I think Casino is more the film about America and has more of a sweep to it than than, than Goodfellas. Goodfellas is is more particular. No. Am I wrong? I I agree with you that Goodfellas is maybe not about the best that humanity has to offer and not about the best that America has to offer. But I really, really like this read of Casino uh, on a metaphorical value mm-hmm. and yeah. like both how the characters break down and what it says about the story and where they go. I, I think that this is really both insightful uh, and kind of like cruelly funny about how the film plays out. Well, I like to, you know, as an aspiring friend of the show, I wanted to get as much, I wanted to discourage him. <laughs> Michael, as much as possible from getting into the show. So I thought I, you got to insult him off the top. You got to insult him a little bit, right? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. No, I think it's a good read. Uh, Casino in particular, as, as, as you said. Scott, are you trying to make sure that you spread the uh, criticism around so every feedback letter has an exactly equal amount of criticism <laughs> in response? A little bit. A little bit. I can never do that. That's, you remember the bit from the, the kids from Goodfellas? De Niro says that. You insulted him a little bit. And then with the key, key? No, yeah, a little you bit. Got, you got it? Like you go get your shine box, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. I'm not crazy. I'm sane. I am not a crackpot, says Scott. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we may feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730. No one's called us in a while. Or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Joker, a decidedly different take on the Joker character in the Batman universe. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be redirecting some funds from R&D for unknown purposes. Mm-hmm.